Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. We're going a little bit back in time to the May Day events that happened here in Melbourne. First, on May the 1st, outside the State Library, as requested by Steve, a long-time listener, followed by some important speeches, short but clear, from the massive event at Port Kembla this year, which tallies with the Melbourne May Day Committee's resolution read out after the march on May the 7th. Later, we go to Alice Springs, where members of the Indigenous Community Caring for Kids Collective talk about the issues affecting them. Kevin follows with a roundup of the week, and we finish up exploring the Welsh experience of the outgoing Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, Sophie Howe, where a country actually takes seriously its responsibility to future generations. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. On May the 1st, outside the State Library, Melbourne, we heard some rousing speeches. First up, we hear from Kieran from the Black People's Union, followed by Luke Hayes from the Australian Communist Party. My comrades, today we gather on this stolen land to commemorate the struggle for workers' rights and to demand our liberation from the chains of imperialism, capitalism and colonialism. Today we stand as one people, united in our determination to overthrow the oppressors, to smash the system of exploitation and to build a new world of justice, freedom and liberation. For too long, we have been oppressed and exploited by the forces of global capitalism, by the imperialist powers that seek to dominate and control us, 
by the colonial system that sees us as nothing more than cheap labour and disposable bodies. For too long, we have been subjugated, subjected to genocide, forced assimilation, cultural erasure and environmental destruction. For too long, we have been denied our right to self-determination, our right to sovereignty and our right to dignity. Today we stand at a critical moment in history, a moment where we must face the ugly truth of imperialism and its devastating impact on Indigenous peoples and all workers around the world. Australia is an imperial power. It has occupied sovereign Indigenous lands for over two centuries and it continues to do so to this day. This colonial state is not simply a pawn in the game of global imperialism, it is a willing participant in the American imperial world order. With its advanced military, intelligence agencies and trade agreements, all geared towards the maintenance of its imperialist domination of sovereign indigenous nations and our local region. But we are not here to simply state the problems. We are here to call for radical and revolutionary solutions. The Black People's Union is a First Nations-led revolutionary organisation with anti-colonial, anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist principles. Our goal is to enforce the sovereignty of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and achieve full self-determination for our people. We are the Indigenous people of this land and we will not be conquered. We are the vanguard of the struggle for liberation and we will not be deterred. We are the voice of the proletariat the peasantry, the oppressed nations, and we will not be silenced. A bit easier that way. We understand that our struggle is part of a larger global struggle against colonialism, capitalism, and imperialism. As Indigenous people, we have a unique perspective on the impacts of these oppressive systems on our communities and on our land. We know that these systems are intrinsically linked and that we cannot achieve true liberation without dismantling all of them. Our struggle for self-determination is intimately connected with the struggle for workers' rights and economic justice. Indigenous and minority workers of the world have a long history of being the most oppressed and exploited members of the workforce. As we stand here today, we must recognise that workers are the backbone of society and it is our duty to stand in solidarity with all oppressed workers around the world who are fighting for their liberation. We will not be silenced by the ruling class and their imperialist allies. We will not be bought off with their empty promises of reform. We know that true liberation can only come through revolutionary struggle and we are willing to fight for it with every breath in our bodies. Our message to the ruling class and their imperialist allies is clear. We will no longer tolerate your oppression, your exploitation and your domination of our lands and our people. We call for the immediate withdrawal of all colonial forces from sovereign indigenous nations, the immediate withdrawal of all foreign troops, all foreign corporations and all foreign powers from our land. We call for the nationalisation of all key industries, all banks, all resources, all controlled under workers. We demand the end of all forms of exploitation, 
all forms of oppression, all forms of discrimination. We demand the complete destruction of the capitalist system, the imperialist system and the colonial government and their society. We demand the full restoration of all Indigenous lands and resources and we demand the immediate cessation of all forms of exploitation and destruction of our lands. And we will fight tirelessly with our teeth and our nails if we have to until our demands are met. We reject the false promises of democracy, of reform and of compromise. We reject the illusion of reconciliation and of assimilation. We reject the lies of the media of the politicians, of the intellectuals. We know the truth, we see the reality, and we feel the pain. But we also see the potential and the power. We see a better future. We see the unity among the workers, among the oppressed, and among the socialist forces around the world. We see the strength of our culture, our traditions, and our identity. We see the possibility of a new world, a world where the people are the rulers where the resources are shared, where the environment is protected and where the entire working class can move forward together as one in peace, equality and harmony. We stand with all workers of the world who are sub subjugated under global capitalism and the American imperial order. We call on our fellow workers to stand with us as we resist the Australian colony's role in enforcing this brutal and destructive capitalist order across the world. Together, we can overthrow the ruling class and their imperialist allies and build a new society based on justice, equality and true liberation for all. The struggle for self-determination is not just a struggle for Indigenous people. It is a struggle for all workers and oppressed peoples around the world. Let us stand together and fight for a future where all peoples are free from imperialism, colonialism and capitalism. All power to the people. Up next, we have Luke Hayes from the Australian Communist Party. Good evening, comrades. It's always nice to see comrades out and about, especially on the day of the international working class. So what's the reason why we're here today? Why celebrate a day like May Day? We're here today to celebrate a working class tradition dating back to over a century. We're here to celebrate the victories of the working class, such as the eight hour working day, first achieved here in Melbourne in 1856. We're here to also to remember those who sacrificed everything for the working class, such as the martyrs of Haymarket and all others who were lost in the struggle. But what about the traditions of the bosses the capitalists and their lackeys in the police. They have kept their end of the tradition very well. The tradition of subjugation, the tradition of oppression, the tradition of exploitation, the tradition of opposing every single person who dares to struggle for their own freedom and liberation. Over in the US, in the belly of the imperialist beast, environmental activists Manuel Paez Tehran was shot 57 times for the crime, for the crime of protesting against growing police militarisation and the destruction of the forest. This happened in January of this year. Up in the Philippines, 
Militants and leaders of the Communist Party, Benito Chiamzon and Wilma Austria Chiamzon, were murdered by the armed forces for, for daring to organise the workers and peasants. They were captured, tortured and killed. The army then dumped their bodies of the murdered revolutionaries in a boat, drove it out to sea and blew up the bodies in an attempt to cover up the crime, as well as to destroy the memory of these red fighters. This happened in August of last year. Back in our own country, in Australia, the capitalists and their enforcers are marching in step with their colleagues in other countries. Anti-protest laws, such as those in New South Wales employed against environmental activists, have been written and pushed through Parliament with the specific goal of constraining those fighting against the complacency of the government during this current climate crisis. Last year up in Townsville, the Australian Army conducted quote-unquote population protection and control exercises in areas simulating urban environments. A quote from the military newsletter Contact reads, Infantry sections are integrated closely with military police teams, detainee processing capabilities and military working dogs to enhance security and crowd dispersion. What does this mean? It means that the ruling class of this country is preparing for future battles with us. They are predicting and indeed expecting our resistance and they are planning accordingly. Of course, in Indigenous communities and against Indigenous people, the cops stop any pretense of appearing to be defenders of the peace and instead act as racist cowboys with a frontier mentality. Indigenous people continue to be disproportionately charged disproportionately incarcerated at rates which rival those countries during apartheid and disproportionately murdered in prisons across the country. Indeed, these are the traditions of the wealthy classes and their running dogs, all to defend their profits. But what about us? Meanwhile, we continue to get fucked over. Inflation has us skipping meals and buying less food for our families. Our jobs are becoming casualised. We have no rights and get paid fuck all. We can barely find places to live in and can't even afford to get a roof over our head. And if we do, we are stuck with the rest of our lives renting, paying 40, 50, 60% of our income. And if we aren't lucky enough for even that, then we join the growing population of people out in the streets, in caravan parks, or if you can suffer through the waiting list, in social housing. It doesn't have to be this way. Our government loves to drape themselves in the cloak of progressivism, but in reality, they sustain a system which produces misery for the working class and profits for the owning class. Our liberation is not found in Parliament, either up in Canberra or down in Spring Street. It is not found in the crusty rooms of Trades Hall amongst crusty trade union bureaucrats. It is found among the people, amongst the working class, on the shop floors and in the ports, on the factory lines and in the kitchens, in the break rooms and in the classrooms. Only when the working class develops its own consciousness and organises can we begin to leave the rule of capital in dust and walk towards a brighter future. So join militant unions, or better yet, make your union more militant. Join community groups such as the Community Union Defence League or any other mass organisations. And get organised. The ruling class 
is waging a war on us. It is high time that we wage a war against them. It is high time we begin the mass march towards revolution and towards socialism. Again, I ask, why do we celebrate May Day? We celebrate it as a day of international solidarity, celebrating the struggle of the working class to fight for the right of freedom to celebrate their past and to build a future without the oppression and exploitation of the capitalist state. Down with colonialism. Down with imperialism. Down with capitalism. All power to the workers. In Port Kembla for May 1, over 2,000 people came to a rally organised by the South Coast Labor Council to declare absolute opposition to any decision to make Port Kembla a site for a nuclear subspace. First we hear from David Shoebridge, he's the Senator for the Greens who outlines the issues. And then we hear Alan Hicks, who is the National and New South Wales Secretary of the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation to come here and to be here. And I want to start by acknowledging this is Darrell Land. Thank Uncle for the welcome to country and the acknowledgement of country. And let's be clear, wherever they put a nuclear submarine base, wherever they put the waste, that'll be First Nations land. This is a First Nations issue and we stand shoulder to shoulder with First Nations people to keep this continent clear of that rubbish and that waste. So thank you, Uncle, for the intro. Look, when the federal government, previously under, I forget his name, the former Prime Minister, and then now under the current one, thought that they were looking around for somewhere to put a nuclear submarine base and they picked Port Kembla, well, they picked the wrong town, didn't they? They picked a union town. They picked a region with a huge and proud history of peace activism and anti-war activism. They picked a community that was going to come together in their thousands and say no to the nuclear submarine base. They picked a union town and they've picked a fight that they will not win. They won't win. But what is especially inspiring about the peace movement and the history of this town, this community and this region is the message today is not in Port Kembla and not in anywhere on this beautiful country. No nuclear submarines anywhere in Australia. That's the message. And as we marched together down that dip of Wentworth Street on Port Kembla, and I looked one way and saw the crowd reaching to the top of one hill, and I looked back and saw the crowd reaching to the top of the other hill, I knew just how strong this community was. And I knew how strong a peace movement is. That when we come together and we talk about a future, not of nuclear submarines, not of conflict, but of working with our neighbours, of fighting against war and spending our collective wealth where we can change the world for a, better, for a better future, I knew we were going to win this right there at the bottom of Wentworth Street. That's when I knew we were going to win this struggle. And can I tell you the deceit from a federal government that says to the country, we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on nuclear submarines. We're going to march off to Washington and do what we're told. We're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on the UK nuclear industry. 
and we're going to build these nuclear submarines, but we're not going to tell you where we're putting them. There's one word for that, and it's deceit. It's dishonesty, and it's deceit. Because we know that they want to whack it here in Port Kembla. And that we know that while ever the threat of a nuclear submarine base is hanging over Port Kembla, the amazing future that Port Kembla can have with a green energy revolution is being stifled. Because there is an exciting future for the Illawarra. There's an amazing future for Port Kembla. A little port, right? Not a big port, a little port. There's an amazing future for Port Kembla, and it's about being a core part of the renewable energy revolution. It's about exporting green energy to the rest of the world, not exporting nuclear submarines to the rest of the world. It's about the thousands and thousands of jobs where we make it a services hub for an offshore wind industry. And you can't do that if you've got a nuclear submarine base with an exclusion zone that kills all of that activity in Port Kembla. It's not just bad for the globe, it's, it's a killing off of this amazing renewable future that Paul Kembla otherwise has. And, and that, and that, from our own government, from our own government, from a Labor government, killing that amazing future of Paul Kembla with this noxious deal is just outrageous. And that's why we say a complete no, a total no, and say no to Paul Kembla right now so we can have that green energy future. And I know like many of you, about a couple of months ago, I went to bed worried about a $200 billion nuclear submarine problem. And I woke up with our Prime Minister in Washington signing us on to a $368 billion nuclear submarine program. And I thought, how could this happen? How could a Labor, Labor government, how could any of our governments sign us on to put $368 billion into weapons of war to threaten people in the South China Sea, not to defend Australia, but to project war and threaten people in the South China Sea. I thought, how could that happen? But then my office, together with the Parliamentary Budget Office, actually started looking at those numbers. And do you know that $368 billion just gets us the first five of AUKUS, these AUKUS subs? And to actually get all eight of the AUKUS SSN subs is going to come close to half a trillion dollars. So it's not a $200 billion disaster. It's not even a $368 billion disaster. It's a $500 billion selling out of our future. They can't even be honest about the obscene cost about this real program. And just think about what that amount of money can do. It is so much money it's hard to conceive of. But think of any problem that we have that can be fixed with money. Any problem. Gold plating Medicare. Dental into Medicare and a gold standard. Building everyone who needs a home a home. Building a renewable energy future. Any problem you can name that can be fixed with money can be fixed with the amount of money that this ugly mob want to spend on nuclear parts. What a disgrace. What a disgrace. So I'm finished with this. I said that there's this amazing history here in this room. And there's a great renewable energy future for Port Kembla. But I'm already getting a sense of one of the really astounding parts of this, this part of the world. And I'm getting a sense of the renewable energy that's in this community to keep coming out on the streets, to be an inspiration for the rest of the country, for being an inspiration for me to go down to Canberra and continue to fight for peace 
to continue to fight against these subs and to remind the rest of this country and that parliament that we're not going to get a nuclear submarine base in Port Kembla. We're not going to get it anywhere. We're going to have a future which is peace and non-violence and we are in this to win it. Thanks very much. ETU New South Wales Brand Secretary, Alan Hicks. Thanks, brother. Uh, I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we meet, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. Also, I want to thank the South Coast Labor Council for organising today. This is a massive roll-up. Arthur, congratulations, mate, and congratulations to everyone that's been up here today. Well done. I think uh, David Shoebridge stole me speech, so I'll have to work on this one part. He's 100% right when he talked about the impact of a nuclear base here in Port Kembla and the impact it would have on the renewable energy future that you do have in the Illawarra. And anything that attacks that or seeks to undermine that is an absolute disgrace. And Anthony Albanese and the rest of the federal government should understand this quite clearly, that we're not going to be prepared to allow the future of renewable energy to be stopped by a nuclear base in Port Kembla, not now and not ever. I'm pretty proud. I'm not only the New South Wales and ACT Secretary, I'm still currently the National Secretary of the ETU. And our union, our union has had a policy against uranium mining and against the nuclear fuel cycle since the Second World War. And we're proud of that. We've campaigned and we've opposed nuclear mining and uranium mining and nuclear fuel cycle all of that time. And I'm here today to stand to as the National Secretary of the ETU and commit the ETU again to that policy. And I want to be clear about that to you. I want to read the extracts of the policy so you can understand from the electrical trade union's perspective why we're opposed to the nuclear base here in Port Kembla. We're opposed to the mining and export of uranium. We're opposed to the use of nuclear fuel for power generation. We're opposed to the use of nuclear fuel to power any equipment or vessel. We're opposed to the provision of uranium enrichment facilities the manufacturing of nuclear weapons, the erection of any nuclear power stations, and the importation of nuclear waste in Australia, and every Australian should support that policy. We're not ideologues. We understand the importance of medical imaging and those sorts of things. So obviously there is a place for small amounts of nuclear, but importantly, that waste has to be treated respectfully and appropriately and dealt with here domestically. But I can say this, I want to reaffirm our policy of our total opposition to all steps of the nuclear fuel cycle. This includes the exploration, mining, use, export or import of uranium or its byproducts, except for the small amounts used strictly for peaceful and socially beneficial purposes. We remain absolutely opposed to the use of nuclear fuels for the generation of electrical energy. We also restate our total and absolute opposition to the manufacture and use of all forms of nuclear weapons, including the use of nuclear fuels to power any equipment or vessels. We call upon the Albanese government to immediately reconsider its position on nuclear-powered submarines and the establishment of a submarine base in Port Kembla. I can guarantee you this, should the Albanese government not change their mind with respect to nuclear-powered submarines and building a base in Port Canberra, they better be ready for one hell of a blue. Because we will work tirelessly and collectively with other like-minded unions 
And I guarantee you we will work with the community in Illawarra to make sure that a submarine base is not built in Port Kembla. And under my watch, it won't be built with ETU labour. We just heard from Green Senator David Shoebridge and ETU National and New South Wales Secretary of the ETU at the massive Port Kembla May Day rally against nuclear-powered sub-bases at Port Kembla. To finish off the May Day report, we hear a similar message coming from the May Day Committee at the Melbourne rally on May the 7th. Each year we uh, send the May Day resolution to many places in the world and to many places in Australia and we'll do the same with this. The people of Melbourne, Australia are gathered at the Melbourne May Day 2023 at a time when many of the working class in Australia and globally are witnessing attacks on their wages, basic rights and working and living conditions unlike anything seen since the Great Depression in the last century. Melbourne May Day supports the mobilisation of the working class to fight the ever-growing gap between rich and poor and the neoliberal policies practised by Parliament which serve the wealthy at the expense of the working class and other toilers. We demand a livable rate of payment for the unemployed, the pensioners and others on social welfare. On top of that, our First Nation people in Australia are forced to suffer the gross indignity of racism, totally inadequate human services and the denial of their land rights and sovereignty. Melbourne May Day supports the yes vote on the referendum but recognise that it will not fix all the problems of the First Nation people. We need to continue to support them in their justified struggle to win their land rights, proper treatment and sovereignty. People across the globe are fighting imperialism and imperialist war. People in Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America and in the USA itself. Melbourne May Day supports and endorses these struggles of the exploited and oppressed throughout the world who are fighting for their rights against exploitation and oppression, for independence and liberation and for a just and peaceful world. According to the United Nations, there are over 70 million people who have been forced out of their homes and countries by war, by oppression, by economic crisis and hunger to become refugees and asylum seekers. Melbourne May Day declares that the mistreatment of these refugees and asylum seekers must stop and Australian workers, along with these workers who come out from other countries, must be supported as they fight to achieve justice and fair treatment. Melbourne May Day declares that Julian Assange is a heroic fighter for peace and for democratic rights and a heroic fighter against the lies and deceptions of the US authorities. We demand his immediate release from unjustified imprisonment in Britain. Melbourne May Day recognises that the global environmental crisis has reached a critical state and we demand that the Australian Parliament and governments of the world take urgent steps to ensure that all industries and activities contributing to the crisis be stopped and or regulated as required to deal with this fundamental issue. Melbourne May Day opposes the warmongering AUKUS and military pact and the obscene spending on nuclear submarines and other war-making equipment. 
At May Day in Melbourne 2023, we reaffirm to redouble our efforts to fight for a peaceful and just world, for a world which, in which the working class and other exploited people control the production and the wealth produced and remove its control from the capitalists and the wealthy so that finally poverty, exploitation, oppression and environmental destruction will be ended. Long live national and international solidarity. Long live International Workers' May Day. Long live democratic rights and socialism. Yes, thank you. Well, that's been moved and seconded in several places. Is there any opposition, please? If not, those in favour say aye. Aye. Those against? It's carried unanimously. Three cheers for May Day. Three cheers for May Day. Hip hip. Hip hip. Hip hip. Thanks, comrades. They speak about it proudly. It's now union folklore. Our wolfies wouldn't load any pig iron for war. Japan was a threat, so they walked off the job. They wouldn't help the fascists for old pig iron bomb. Well, they were right that time, and they're right again now. But the strength of isn't much of a power so united they stand against all odds fighting for us all against the little things indonesia's young and fighting to be free but the dutch had different plans for their former colony the people rose up with freedom on their lips and the wolfies stopped loading many dutch bound well, they were right that time, and they're right again now. But the strength of one isn't much of a power. So united, they stand against all odds, fighting for us all against the little tin gods. Korea was in trouble, overrun by the Yanks. Wolfies told a load of rifles, guns and tanks. But why get involved in this bloody civil war? We're not gonna ship any weapons anymore. They were right that time and they're right again now. But the strength of one isn't much of a power. So united they stand against all odds. Fighting for us all against a little Pig Iron Bob's back says we're off to Vietnam Tugging his forelocks for good old Uncle Sam The seamen wouldn't work, the warship Boonaroo And the wolfies held the line when they sacked the ship's crew Well they were right that time and they're right again now But the strength of one isn't much of a power so united they stand against all odds, fighting for us all against the little tin gods. The struggles moved on, mass seconds overnight. The union survival is the heart of the fight. We'll defy your threats, your thugs and corn. We're standing united, no wolfie can be born. You see, history's on our side. We'll see this battle through 
There's too much at stake for their profits of the few. Our fathers before us stood on every picket line. Keep their memories alive and we'll win every time. They've been right every time and they're right again now. But the strength of one isn't much of a power. So united they stand against all odds. Fighting for us all against the little tin gods. They've been right every time and they're right again now. But the strength of one isn't much of a power. So united they stand against all odds. Fighting for us all against the little tin gods. Fighting for us all against the little tin gods. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. You will no doubt be aware of the outcomes for Indigenous kids in Alice Springs as a result of the further dispossessions caused by the intervention. I received a release from Community Caring for Kids Collective from Alice Springs who wanted to put forward their views and solutions. They started their press release with Caring for Kids is Everyone's Responsibility. First Nation elders and community members call for change so that local kids get the support needed, including a 24-7 safe space for kids, somewhere to go to receive a hot meal, a bed and culturally appropriate care. Access to local facilities that will provide young people with safe and enjoyable activities, for example, free access to a swimming pool. Support for local events to engage children. Example, barbecues with businesses and pop-up events where children can create art, theatre and play sports. Support to address intergenerational trauma in culturally safe ways so the community can experience healing together. Support to have a pick-up and drop-off service for kids to get them to a safe space. Support to getting kids on country to learn from their elders and address their needs for culture and safety. I got to speak to Peltre Chris Tomlin, our auntie custodian, and his assistant, Janelle, from the collective about their concerns and their solutions. I read what you said in the... uh media release and I was wondering if you could talk to my listeners what what are you most worried about when it comes to your young kids do you want to talk to that uh, well that future and um it's like that question comes like um 15 years of them being dispossessed of their country and just the reconnecting of that start that process but it's one of many things that's just one process getting them back onto country so they can have that um, connection back to their country. When they had the intervention, uh, they took away a lot of stuff, didn't they? Yeah, they took away the parents' responsibility, their rights to control and grow their kids up. And um, that was one of the um, the things we discussed bringing up now that we want control of our kids and the way we can control our kids is back on country. And we're looking at ways of um, 
moving forward in that area, it's like a little road to self-determination. But that's not going to happen through the government. It's only going to happen through the people, through the communities, to support our rights to have responsibilities for our kids and our future of our kids and also to our country. And that's what the main issue is um, focused in on, is everybody having a responsibility and sharing in the community and um, understanding what's really going on with our kids because the kids are not the problem. And then people have got to understand that, you know, as adults, as parents, can't sit back and point the finger and say the kids are making all this trouble. It goes a lot back further than that, and um, a lot of that cannot be explained in a nutshell, but um, the main driver is self-determination, responsibility, and getting our kids back on country so they can connect to their identity and who then what they are. And that's... Um, that's the first stepping stones to um, healing. You were saying that uh, the kids ended up in Alice Springs, for example, because everything was taken away from the homelands. Yeah, well, um, when the intervention come in, it shut down over 140 communities and everybody got moved into town. Mm. And that's what created a lot of internal trouble amongst the tribal mob. Everyone all cramped up in one area and, um, you know, as tribal people, we have our own country and our own connection. So that brought a, um, that brought a lot of problems into the town, just through the um, closest of the community. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's all about, you know, property damage and uh, all that kind of stuff. But in actual fact, what's happened is uh, they've dif- disconnected all those young people from their actual country and their purpose, right? Yep. And it's been 15 years, so a lot of kids are born into this dilemma now, disconnection, and I'm not understanding they, their identity and who and what they are. Mm. They're walking around like empty. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've come up with a plan, Community Caring for Kids Collective. And, um, I mean, I was I, I was looking at the list and some of it is really practical, isn't it? Like First Nations yes. elders and community members call for change, uh, 24-7 safe space for kids, somewhere to go to receive a hot meal, a bed and culturally appropriate care. Yep. Yeah. Well, one of the um, areas that were targeted but um, is still being approached legal way so we're not bringing it up a bit too much but um we're looking at um uh, regaining some of these the facilities there that can take care of the kids that were there since their grandmothers got taken and we're looking at uh so um talking with the um religious mob the church mob the angler angler care about um some sort of um restitution <laughs> Important. Yeah. And I'm helping us facilitate because we know that the government's not going to do a thing. We just know that. So it's up to the community and everyone to engage in this and start supporting us as one of the oldest living cultures on this planet to survive. And that's one of my main concerns is that um, if we don't stand up and do something now, then our kids are going to be gone in about 20 years' time. 
Yeah, that's the biggest fear because I, our culture and our laws are not written in books. They pass down. Yes. And you get the kids away. You stop that from happening and then you um, more or less cut the head off the snake, so to speak. So um, you talk about um, threats being made towards your children by people in Alice Springs. What's been made? Threats. Threats against the kids. Yeah, because yeah, um, they looked at us the problem. And um, just kids going to um, finish school or Aboriginal kids just walk into a shop and they've got a security guard watching them straight away, following them around. Mm. And um, it just makes them feel uncomfortable, intimidated. Yep. Every time they respond, they get more and more into trouble. So. Yeah, yeah, it just leads to one, one thing leads to another. Yeah. I think yeah. there's a level of um, community frustration, you know, that this is going on and the media and the government are doing a really great job at um, blaming the children. So ultimately that becomes part of the narrative within community that the kids are the problem rather than looking at the systematic... Um, abuse that's been occurring for over generations and I think with the um, community caring for kids our priority is to look at um, the healing and how do we begin healing that colonized trauma and how do we do that as a community a whole community coming together yeah I, I was really struck by really practical things that are being put forward for the community to seem so sensible instead of all yeah. these outrageous things that they keep saying. Yeah, well, what we know is that when community-led action occurs, it's sustainable and it, it, it actually has an impact. And um, I'm not sure if you got to read that NT News article, um, but they also spoke about that, um, what Parinya, the school, is looking yeah. at doing. No, I don't. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, so they're looking at getting some... Um, accommodation on the grounds for the school for kids to come in. I think they said for 24 children and families that are at risk that, so that they can stay in the school and stay engaged with the school. Do, is there any talk about um, the community being, uh, you know, the homelands being uh, given back their uh, services at all? No, not a, no none of that's been... It's only the early stages where we're bringing this up, the community's bringing up, but um, hopefully that um, once we start getting it out there a bit more, the government will facilitate for it. We'll be looking at other places that might be able to help in those areas. Because it seems to me that there should be a, a, almost a legal action against the government for duty of care. <laughs> well, there's all of that happening, so that... But at the moment, we just want to um, we just want the community to um, engage in the in the summit. And the we government. want the government to partner with us and to partner with community and support community-led mm. action to ensure that those conversations are being had and actions can be funded towards that as an end goal. We know that kids that are learning on country um, are retained at school longer. We know, you know, that the importance of that. 
and the government knows that too. So we just need them to come in and get behind us and allow community to lead this process because that's the thing that hasn't occurred and that's why we haven't seen change. Yeah, it sounds very sensible to me uh, what you're saying. Uh, I hope uh, you get some traction. I hope something happens good for you. Yeah, well, that's what we're hoping that um, we have um, experts coming in like uh, when Albanese was the spoke in Alice Springs and said, this town is facing intergenerational trauma. And uh, so we brought in um, experts like Judy Atkinson to come in and um, just create awareness to the broader community what intergenerational trauma is about and how it's come about. And um, so that the community got a better understanding about our situation. And through that understanding, we'll um, engage more and support more. Are, are you getting a, a sense that the uh, broader Alice Springs community is understanding what's happening for you guys? I think that's um, part of our initiative and what we really um, hope to continue to build on in the coming months. 12 months. Um, just to constant community education and community um, engagement so we can continue to bring community together so that we can learn together and heal together and and that's you know that's a big part of what we hope to continue to do so i i'm down here in melbourne that's a long way away from you guys is there anything that people here can do that would be positive for you that would be helpful yeah we're, we're, go, we're going to try to develop up some social media pages and um we're going to same as what we're doing in Alice springs we're asking people to just come on board whether that's just with their hearts or if they want to in-kind support towards the um, movement so we're going to we're working on that at the moment just to raise awareness and to get it out there because what we know is that this isn't only happening in Alice springs this is an australian wide problem yeah, it is. The focus is on Alice Springs at the moment, but there's communities and people suffering across the nation. Yeah, that's right. Uh, work needs to be done. And and the thing is that you know what, what works, don't you? Well, yeah, definitely. What we know is community-led solutions work and they're sustainable. Is there anything I should have asked you that you'd like to say? Is there anything you'd like to say that I could uh, give you time for? Uncle Chris? No, not really. Just um, just, just sort of like a wake-up call and um, just for Australians just to um, really um, have a change of heart and think serious about what's really going on with the oldest culture in this country and we're down to 3% now. And we're looking at doomsday and we're looking at how we're going to handle that. How can we fix that? How can we all work together as a community on it? And yeah, that's one that um, just creating awareness to the community that you know, we're not dangerous people. We have done no harm to anyone. And um, we just want to have the rights to grow our children up on that country at the end of it all. No. Yeah. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for giving me some time. It's our pleasure. Thanks for getting our message out there.
when the newly financially liberated destitute, now former destitute, were celebrating their almost $3 a day windfall, well, $2.85, discussing the spending spree they could now have, the luxury items that $2.85 would allow them, whooping it up and dancing in their favourite gutters, inviting each other to visit their favourite gutter to 
party deep into the night, deep into the budget night. Albo promised no one would be left behind, they laughed happily, and he has delivered. But that's because he understands. Don't know if you know, because he doesn't make a point of it, but he was raised by a single mother in public housing. Public housing? One young former destitute revelling in his newfound wealth looked puzzled. Uh, yes, yes, it was housing the government used to provide for people like us. Well, for all sorts of people. Uh, so what happened to it? Oh, they sold it off to developers and made it private housing and gave some to those groups who come round and tell us how much they care for us. Uh, why? Well, obviously, so the developers and the private goody-goody groups can help us, although I feel sorry for Albo, because if he was a kid today, he and his mother would be living in their car if they had one, or here with us if they didn't. Oh dear, poor Albo. Yes, but, but good news for us, they plan to spend lots of money on affordable housing, and the $2.85 should go a long way to helping us there. Just check my pockets. Can, can you get an affordable house for 75 cents? Uh, and don't forget, another party goer shouted, Albo and Jim Chalmers Capital tell us time and again they know we are doing it tough. That would explain why they have been so generous. And another newly financially liberated reminded them, don't forget the government has to find 38 mil a day for 30 years and some say it could end up as high as 57 mil a day for the nuclear submarines that will ensure our security in our favourite gutters and trillions more on train killing to protect us which makes their generosity even more big-hearted. And so they celebrated long into the night, and indeed last heard were still celebrating, still enjoying the high life in their favourite gutters, showing how Elbow and Jim really do understand that people are doing it tough and the extraordinary lengths they will go to look after them. By the way, Jim, we asked Jim, what is affordable housing? It's housing people can afford, or more correctly, sold or rented at 80% of market value are determined by, by whom? Well, those who understand the market, the developers, the real estate industry, the Property Profits Council. We found a homeless bloke who had 75 cents in his pocket and he was wondering, ha, you've got to be joking. And you've given millions to the big developers who are making a killing out of the build-to-rent market, which caters for the top end of the rental market. How will that help those doing it tough? This is a carefully calibrated policy to help the people a socialist government cares about. Oh, what, developers, the real estate and property industry? No, no, of course not. Those doing it tough. Carefully calibrated. Remarkably clever, really. For if we can provide this benefit for the top end of the market, it will free up the bottom end of the market for those we care about. Uh, but how will that make housing affordable for those doing it tough? By, um, by, uh, uh, by, well, obviously, because it's a remarkably clever, carefully calibrated, thoroughly thought through policy, and it has the full support of developers, the real estate industry, and the Property Profits Council. Uh, thanks, Jim. Pleasure.
Despite going to extraordinary lengths to help those doing it tough, Jim and the team showed much less consideration for those making a patriotic effort to make life better for all of us. The budget did make life tough for the poor great resource behemoths, ripping more tax off them for no better reason than the great patriotic behemoths are making trillions in super-duper over-the-top of seen profits from Trublawasi resources, making it surprising that the mining giants uttered not a word of objection to this new crippling impost, reducing their profits to no more than super-duper over-the-top obscene. Okay, okay, sure, there were two proposals put forward by the Treasury which would have raised trillions more than the trickle the government will receive, but sensibly the government sat down and negotiated with the mining giants who put forward their own proposal on how much tax they should pay, and obviously it is very good proposal because... That's the one the government adopted. With sure, a few sensible conditions like new mining ventures have a seven-year moratorium before paying the tax. That makes sense because it gives them seven years before they have to spend money on their tax lawyers on how to avoid it. Sorry, how to meet their legal tax obligations. It's grossly unfair how people accuse the caring business class of avoiding tax, of tax evasion, when none of them do. They just find ways of not paying it so they meet their legal tax obligations. Or as a former filthiest rich of the filthy rich, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse put it, anyone who pays their taxes is bloody mad. And Lord Kerry never, never broke the law in not paying his taxes. Oh, and the mining giants can also make all sorts of claims to (coughs) reduce the extra tax, so it's a puzzlement as to why we haven't heard a word of complaint from the poor dears. Complaints, though, from the caring business class party about this spectacular generosity to the most destitute of the destitute. Their windfall will increase inflation and hurt not only the most destitute, but all true blue Aussies. This irresponsible spending will destroy the world as we know it. It threatens the very foundations of Trublawasi society, the very fabric. It ignores middle Trublawasi. Not so big economic guru Angus Tailings predicted Armageddon. Um, giving the most destitute of an extra 285 a day will destroy the economy? Absolutely. We demand that these dull bludgers get a job, contribute to the profits of their caring employer, which makes us all better off. This is by far the worst decision since the people voted for the socialists. That bad, Angus. That bad. The caring business class lot have found this week's path to the government benches. Middle, true Aussie. Every interview with any of them stresses the budget ignores middle true blue Aussie. Middle true blue Aussie. Middle true blue Aussie. So, if you're tall or short, bad luck. You're going to miss out. Speaking of the caring business class lot, talk about intellectual jealousy, listener. Canberra University professor Chris Wallace, article in the Saturday paper under the headline... Sit down if you're not sitting down or lying in bed. You you won't believe this. Under the headline, maybe Peter Duffer's just not that smart. Can't envy be cruel. I can feel our collective shock like an earthquake. How could anyone question Constable Duffer's intellect? Like you know. Why, he passed 
well, we presume he passed, the Queensland Police Entry Test, one of the great academic challenges. Why, Pete's such a deep thinker, he said we must reduce emissions and must increase our supply of and reliance on gas and fossils and must have nuclear energy. So how could anyone question such intelligence? Shame, Chris Wallace, shame. Shame also to the telly channel's news the other night covering the concert to celebrate the great event which had us all glued to our tellies last week, reporting our head of state's inbred lot had let their hair down after the solemn and oh-so-important ceremony. Fair enough, but how cruel. For as they said, let their hair down, the camera concentrated on the son who has no hair to let down. What hurtful disrespect. But then the son with no hair to let down made a speech to honour our head of state in which he eulogised, we're all so proud of you. And I thought, what is there to be proud of? Because the only contribution his father made to becoming the king was getting born. Once he survived childbirth, it was a walk-up start. Oh, well, maybe the hairless one was proud he had survived childbirth, which we'll be the same to be proud of when he becomes our head of state. Albo, big supremo Anthony Albinguzi, said he swore allegiance to our head of state in his most gracious majesty's home country, his heirs and successors, like the proud son, because uh, that's what the Troubler Aussie people would want me to do. Well, listener, he didn't ask us. Maybe we're not true, true blue Aussie people. Unlike those vigilantes up in Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, out to set young Terra Nullius' um, kids straight, prompting State Supremo, the State Supremo, to plead, don't take the law into your own hands. The police are employed to do that. And they sure do. Constable Duffer would attest to that. On matters legal, one of our great corporate citizens, Borrell, was dragged before the court over exposing workers to silicon dust for years, not enforcing masks or protection when it knew the dangers, facing maximum fines of one and a half million, but walking away with a fine of a hundred and something grand, because the bench said it had submitted an early guilty plea and was sorry. Of course, they're all sorry when they get sprung. Not as sorry as the exposed workers who face a painful death. Their collective lives worth a hundred and something grand. Uh, tell my PA to take it out of the petty cash team, will you? Oh, but Borrell also apologised to its workers. That'll console them as they struggle to breathe. And it said it accepts the outcome. But it does. Also in court, former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, done for sexual assault and defamation, describing the decision, the biggest witch hunt the world has ever seen, ever, ever, a disgrace, assuring us he has no idea who the woman is, a nutcase. Careful, Donald, or the defamation compensation might blow out. And look, it's quite possible he does have no idea who she is, because he because he didn't need to look at her face or consider she might have a name. And the number one US ob train killer, General James McCock Villains, came here to tell us our record spending on train killing is not enough. 
The purpose of my visit is to come and talk about issues of mutual concern and how we can work better together and how we can continue to build the strength of our alliance. Uh, and how can we achieve that, James? Uh, by you spending lots and lots more on our merchants of death. So finally, that $38 million a day nuclear sub-deal is just a drop in the ocean, in the U.S. of ocean, which in the interest of war is peace, is every ocean. But what hopes satire when he then talked of peace through strength? George Orwell can't compete. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. During April, the outgoing Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, Sophie Howe, was in Australia giving voice to the experience of a country that has legislated with the Wellbeing of Future Generations Wales Act 2015 into law the priority of establishing a sustainable future for upcoming generations. Here are some excerpts from her chat on a webinar run by UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney. I started my life in a, in a part of, of Wales, a part of our capital city, which is what we describe as a deprived area, often in the, um, in the headlines for the wrong reasons. Um, huge um, amounts of inequality, worklessness, high rates of teenage pregnancy, all of those um, sorts of things. First in my family to go to university, passionate about changing um, the lot um, of the people that I grew up with so that um, where you're born shouldn't determine your your future. But increasingly what we're talking about here is when you're born uh, shouldn't sort of negatively determine your um, your your future. I was elected at the age of um, 21 with that as my sort of passion and, and mission. Um, I've worked in or around political environments. I'm still passionate about how do we drive change. So the role of the first future generations commissioner um, for me was uh, an unprecedented opportunity to be able to do that. The Government of Wales and the Parliament of Wales was established in 1999 following a successful referendum to devolve power to Wales. Um, the Government of Wales Act actually had a clause in it which said that sustainable development should be a central organising principle of the government. So that's a kind of lofty ambition. And a, what did it mean in practice? Absolutely nothing. It was very difficult to get the buy-in and the real focus from the economy minister, the housing minister, the transport minister. It was very much seen as the domain of the um, environment minister. And often as these things happen, it was around about 2010 where in um, Westminster and a new Conservative Lib Dem coalition were created. Now, it's also important to say um, Labour have always run the government um, in Wales back from 1999. They have always been left of centre. The second First Minister talked about, even when Labour was in power in Westminster, talked about a clear red water um, between <laughs> the policies of um, Labour in Westminster and Labour um, in Wales, so much more uh, progressive generally. And I think that has a big significance in terms of our ability to do some of these um, progressive things. So uh, political opportunism, because the uh, UK government uh, previously under Labour had established a non-statutory sustainable development commission, a kind of advisory body to the government. And the new Conservative and Lib Dem coalition abolished that um, non-statutory sustainable development commission, which led Jane Davidson, the, the minister in question in Wales, to say, particularly because Wales always likes to have this clear red water uh, between itself and Westminster, to say, ah, not only will we not abolish our non-statutory sustainable development commission, we will put it on a statutory footing. 
meeting. We will also be more specific in that legislation about what we mean by sustainable development being a central organising principle for government, but also make it a central organising principle for the whole public sector in Wales. She then got a commitment from the then First Minister to put that in as an election pledge for the next election. She then retired from government. So the new government were left with this thing, the baby, if you like, of Jane Davidson, not really knowing what it was that they had signed up to. Just that one line, we will legislate for sustainable development. These things can go two ways, can't they? Either that means that no one picks it up, you know, nothing really happens, or there's a a kind of absence or a vacuum and bright and brilliant people come in and fill that vacuum. And fortuitously in Wales, that is what happened. A bright team of civil servants looking at uh, what might be possible, a big push from civil society seeing the potential of this one line as an election pledge, which translated into a programme for government, and a push to for that to trigger, because the government didn't know what exactly it should mean, a national dialogue with the citizens of Wales, which was called the Wales We Want. Um, so we posed the question to the citizens of Wales, what is the Wales you want to leave behind to your children, your grandchildren and future generations to come? And those citizens of Wales came up with what eventually became our seven long-term well-being goals, looking at what they said, what was happening at a UN, at an international level with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and bringing that down and localising that into our seven well-being goals, which is the vision that our country has set out for Wales. Their titles are probably nothing um, that you might not expect to see. So a prosperous Wales, um, a resilient Wales, um, and that's about ecological resilience, um, enhancing, restoring, maintaining um, nature and ecosystems. A healthier Wales, which is about physical and mental health and well-being, maximising the conditions within which those mental and physical health and well-being can thrive. Um, A Wales of cohesive communities, safe, attracted, well-connected, vibrant communities. A more equal Wales, a Wales of vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language and a globally responsible Wales. I just want to pick out then um, a couple of those to perhaps give a little bit more um, detail. So first off, you might note if you um, you come from a a knowledge base around sustainable development, talk about sustainable development generally as as a three-legged stool. It's about social, economic and environmental sustainability and and well-being. We have a four-legged chair, if you like, in Wales, because we have that addition of culture, Um, our culture, our heritage, our language. And that, I think, is an important um, addition and has actually been quite transformative in of itself. The other thing that was quite interesting, we started off with six well-being goals and through the passage of the Act in Parliament, um, the goal of a globally responsible Wales was added in. So this is really recognising, of course, that things that we do, you know, in Wales as a small nation, but predominantly in the global north has these, you know, generally terrible knock-on consequences um, to poorer people in the in the global south. Um, The other really interesting thing is the goal of um, a prosperous Wales. And I think this is the the statutory definition of a prosperous Wales is a productive, innovative and low carbon society, one which uses resources efficiently and proportionately, including acting on climate change and which develops a well-educated population with the skills to enable them to access decent work. So it's not a catchy definition, 
but it's a really exciting definition of prosperity. One, because of what it doesn't reference, GDP. Mm. Uh, two, because mm. it firmly puts prosperity in Wales within the context of planetary boundaries. Um, it focuses on skills and it focuses on giving our population access to decent work or fair work, not just any old work. Um, and so those are the kind of goals, the duties on all of our main public institutions, starting with 44 um, public institutions, all of our local councils, our health boards who are responsible for running all of our national health care uh, system and services in Wales, our national organisations like our Environment Agency, our Public Health Agency, um, our national parks, and then significantly the Welsh Government itself. Um, they must set objectives which maximise their contribution to all seven of those wellbeing goals. That means every one of those organisations must work beyond their um, traditional boundaries, if, if yeah. you like. Um, the number of bodies covered has now gone up from 44 to 50 um, public institutions in Wales um, with this vision for Wales being the objective that they all must um, seek to achieve. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and we're listening to Sophie Howe, Outgoing Future Generations Commissioner for Wales. She was talking at a UTS seminar, giving some idea how this huge cultural shift in government priorities actually worked in Wales. And the law then sets out this sort of toolkit, if you like, of how do we need to work differently in um, government and public service delivery and so on. It sets out five ways of working. So our public institutions must demonstrate how they've considered the long term, you know, the long term impact of the things that they are thinking of doing and the long term in terms of how they set objectives to maximise their contribution to all of those seven wellbeing goals. They must seek to prevent problems from occurring or from getting worse. They must integrate their actions. So these are duties to recognise the positive potential connections between each of those wellbeing goals. So, you know, we're not going to achieve our goal of a healthier Wales, for example, if the planet <laughs> crashes and, and burns because, you know, we're We'll all we'll all die. Um, we're not going to either achieve the goal actually of a more prosperous Wales with access to decent work because there are no jobs on a dead planet. Um, equally, we're not going to achieve our goal of a more equal Wales if we don't address the issues around health inequality which exist in Wales and so on. So that duty to think of things in an integrated um, way, then duties to collaborate, so to work together. And there are specific structures which are established by the law to require public institutions to do that, something called public services boards in each of our local authority areas or regions, and also to work so to work together across the public sector, but also with the voluntary sector and the private sector, and then to involve citizens. And, you know, note that word is involve, not engage, consult, involve is a deeper sense of co-production. And then it establishes an independent future generations commissioner. And my job, um, I describe it often as both coach and referee. So powers to um, advise and support the institutions on the steps they should take to, to meet the wellbeing goals and then duties to monitor and assess. The overarching kind of purpose of the Future Generations Commissioner is to be the guardian of the interests of the future generations of Wales and to encourage and monitor and assess the extent to which public bodies are taking account of the long term. 
So um, in a, at, at a countrywide level, the, um, the act is or the goals are measured by um, 50 national indicators. They're not a perfect set of indicators because often indicators are things that we're sort of capable of measuring rather than um, things that we might want to, to measure. Um, they do, however, have um, a, a number of the indicators relate back to the National Survey for Wales, which is um, you know, interviews with with a survey and interviews with people. So it does measure things like, um, you know, how many people feel that there's a, a sense of community in the area that they live. Um, you know, how many of you are volunteering? You know, when did you last feel lonely? Uh, those sorts of things. So they're the sort of softer measures, which are, I think are, are an important part, as well as the kind of, you know, harder, um, harder measures. Um, in terms of so there's, there's a, a few um, things. So this has really come from the, the work of um, my office as, as commissioner. So first of all, we um, developed and what we called a future generations um, framework. So um, for different types of decisions that governments might take. So for infrastructure, for example, if you're deciding what infrastructure a country might need, how would you apply a Future Generations Act uh, lens to that? Likewise, if you're looking at policy or service delivery, how might you apply um, a Future Generations uh, lens to that? Um, perhaps I can just, and, and I'll go on to the uh, the, the maturity matrix in, in just a moment. Um, perhaps I can just kind of give a live, uh, you know, a real example of um, how that worked in practice. So the first big test of the legislation was the government had plans which had been on their books for a, a, a long period of time, hadn't come into fruition, but they were um, just in 2017 started to um proceed with a plan to um, deal with the problem of congestion um, on one of our major motorways um, by um, spending the entire of the government's borrowing capacity on building a 13 mile stretch of uh, motorway as a kind of relief road to deal with this problem of congestion. Mm -hmm. So that um, so this, you know, I was sort of a year less than a year into um, into post um, just starting work on this framework for infrastructure and this uh, particular decision had sort of ac accelerated that. So using the development of this framework on how they should ap apply the act, uh, the act to that decision, I asked them to explain, well, how they'd done it, how they'd considered long-term trends, what um, metrics and data they'd used to consider in terms of prevention, how they were looking at things in an integrated way and so on, but particularly how they were applying the, the well-being goals. So how they considered that goal of prosperity, as you can imagine, this uh, was played out as a this um, this this road is essential for our for our economic prosperity. Um, and in fact, the Conservative Secretary of State, um, who had a role in releasing these funds for the Welsh Government to um, to borrow, said that this congestion was a foot on the, the, the throat of the economy in Wales and therefore it needed to be um, it needed to be built. Um, all well and good. I disagree with him. But um, actually, the, you know, the law says the definition of prosperity is productive, innovative, low carbon using resources efficiently and proportionally and acting on climate change. I then asked them to explain how it was in line with the goal of a resilient Wales. It was going through a nature reserve. Um, our environment uh, body said it would give it would, there would be irreparable damage to that um, nature reserve and na nature and biodiversity. 
and how it was in line with the goal of a healthier Wales, because we have illegal levels of air pollution. Um, we have increasing rates of obesity. What, what trends are they taking into account there? How it was in line with the goal of a more equal Wales, because 25 percent of the lowest income families don't own a car. So are you seriously proposing to spend the entire of the country's borrowing capacity on a programme that's only going to benefit the already better off? And it was really interesting because it went to a public inquiry and the inspector at the public inquiry recommended that it should still go ahead. That's back to what I was talking about um, there. You know, even when you start to change the system and culture within government, you've still got all these other organisations that play a role whose culture has not, necess- has not necessarily changed. Um, but following those interventions, which were played out very, very publicly as a spat, if you like, a fight between the commissioner and the government, um, the first minister changed his mind. He cancelled the road building um, scheme and he set up a commission to instead look at and the terms of reference. Of the commission were based around the well-being uh, goals and the Future Generations Act. What is the solution to this congestion problem which best meets the yeah. seven well-being goals? So those are the kind of requirements of the act. And that framework sets out the sorts of things that. Uh, bodies should think of and apply to demonstrate that they've applied the act to their um, to their decision making. The maturity matrix um, is a sort of next iteration of that, if you like. So the commissioner has powers to um, under Section 20 of the Act to undertake reviews. Those are, I suppose, the toughest powers of the commissioner because the commissioner can't force anyone to do anything or stop anyone doing anything. Um, they can call out, they can commission research, they can convene people, you know, so on and so on. The Section 20 review powers gives the commissioner powers to go into a particular organisation um, and review a particular decision or a way in which they're operating. Um, the commissioner can make recommendations, which the public body um either have to follow or if they don't follow, they have to publish their reasons why they're not following those recommendations and what it is they're going to do um, instead. So it's kind of name and shame powers, if yeah. you if you like. Um, so one of my last acts, if you like, was to really go into government um, uh, with the exam question, how well is the machinery of government embedding the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in the way that it operates? Because what we've seen across Wales is some massively transformational policy um, initiatives, the universal basic income, following that M foot the motorway issue, a moratorium on road building in Wales, transformation of our school curriculum, um, commitments around zero waste and a, and a range of other um, things. But I could not be assured that every decision in government was applying the Future Generations Act in the way that our civil service was going about doing that. So what we looked at is um, what was happening in terms of the people and culture element of applying the act in government, what was happening in terms of process and what was happening in terms of their role as public sector leaders. Um, And from that, um, we agreed a joint improvement plan with the government, which sets out what we call a maturity matrix, Mm -hmm. which is an assessment really of where on the journey the Mm -hmm. government, and it could be used by any public sector organisation actually, where in the journey on those uh, three topics they are. So are they right at the beginning where there's no evidence they're properly applying the Act? Or um, are they sort of being a bit more adventurous in how they might apply it? Mm -hmm. Um, Or are they really kind of leading the way? And it takes us through each of those five ways of working and says, Um, So, for example, on prevention, you know, one of the things we say is 
one of the you know you need to understand the root causes of the the issues that you're dealing with so you know we'd see no evidence as being you know no understanding um and challenges are viewed in in isolation mm-hmm. we'd see being a bit more adventurous as research perhaps they might commission research to understand causality um we might see big challenges considered across an organization and then we'd see leading the way in this area as a clear plan to tackle root causes of issues and all challenges are considered um, and acted upon in a system um, wide way. So that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. We had a look at the May Day events in Melbourne and Port Kembla. We heard some community solutions for caring for kids in Alice Springs. Kevin did a roundup, and we heard that planning for a better future is happening in Wales right now with the Wellbeing of Future Generations Wales Act 2015. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Coast. enjoy listening to that podcast 3cr is a community radio station and you the listener are a part of that community right now it's our radiothon we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going we can't do it without you it's easy head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate your donations really matter